You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. 56% of women are affected by sleep disturbance in their lifetime. Women are affected by sleep disturbances twice as much as men. Over 50% of women will complain of insomnia or difficulty sleeping, particularly during their postmenopausal years. Can we do a better job as physicians evaluating this problem and managing insomnia with more than just a sleeping pill? Joining me to discuss hormonally related sleep disturbances is Dr. Joyce Wesselbin, Associate Professor of Medicine at New York University and sleep expert and co-author of A Woman's Guide to Sleep. Dr. Wesselbin, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Thank you. So, you know, it's really remarkable. I cannot tell you how many postmenopausal women and just women in general that I see in my practice where people are complaining about insomnia every day. At least a third of every survey shows that people are suffering from some sleep problem, and, and insomnia is a typical one. But women, I think, are hit much more strongly than men, as you've mentioned. Mm-hmm. How do you define insomnia when you're evaluating a patient? Well, officially, insomnia is difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep and having some consequence of it the following day so that you're not at your peak. Do you think that there is a specific reason why women seem to be more affected by these issues than men? Well, there's absolutely reasons why women are affected more often. We have rolling hormones, and they start in our teens, and they don't really end. We certainly go through any number of hormonal changes and stages throughout our lifetime that affect our ability to sleep. And women have a different personality perspective than a man might. We tend, because of hormones, to want to solve things, settle things, talk them through. And unfortunately, I think we take it to bed as well. We don't let go of our daytime issues. So the racing thoughts before bedtime because you have to get the kids, the work, the husband all tucked in. That's right. Do you think that there is a specific hormonal difference in how we should consider this problem for women, so for example, having sleep issues while they're pregnant versus postmenopausally? Absolutely. For a pregnant woman, you have a surging, certainly, of estrogen, and you also have the girth and the physical changes of the baby and the stresses of what now in a new aspect of their life. For postmenopausal, you have, in a sense, the opposite. So you have waning hormones, which also cause their issues, both physical and psychological. But I think they're two very different categories. How would you go about evaluating this type of patient, the woman who comes into your office in a variety of age groups in her life, you know, during their lifetime in our offices? How would you really evaluate them to kind of get at the management of these problems? I'd like to know what their sleep is like and what their day is like. Unfortunately, we forget that there's a 24-hour clock going and sleep is just one aspect. So I'd like to know what they do in the evenings, what type of food they eat, what their stress level is. And then when they get into bed, what happens? Happens. And the best question to anyone is, how do you know you're awake during the night? And they'll look at you like you're crazy, but they'll say, well, well, I'm looking at the clock. And that's the best clue you have, because if they got rid of the clock, they'd probably sleep through what would be an otherwise normal awakening. So a lot of this is talk time with them to really get a feel for what they're doing and what's going on. So a lot of it's perspective and history taking. Absolutely. And it's time taking, unfortunately. I have the privilege of spending that kind of time, but most primary care docs don't. So it's something that you could set up with your office staff, for instance, and uh, questionnaires in your office so that you can kind of prime the patient and they're not going to waste time when they finally see the physician. 
Is there a specific scale or history questionnaire that you like to use that's formalized? Well, we certainly have the Epworth Sleepiness Scale, which gets at moments of during their day when they feel fatigued and sleepy. But there are any number of other issues, depending upon the specialty that the physician is, that they would be able to at least give them questionnaires. A sleep diary is, is an interesting piece. When do you go to bed? When do you get up? How regular is it? That type of information is very helpful. I found it very interesting. I had never heard of the Epworth Sleeping Scale until we were going to be speaking today. And I find it fascinating that they want you to check, you know, how sleepy are you when you're watching television or driving a car? And it, it struck me that a lot of those things could also diagnose narcolepsy very different than insomnia. They do. They diagnose normal people, at least from the data that we have. We can pull normal, which is a scale of under eight. And then you can pull otherwise sleepy people, and then you can pull pathologically sleepy people. Mm-hmm. So depending upon where you might fall on that scale, it gives you at least a target zone to think about. About. The other more important, I think, aspect of that is it, it warms the patient up. Not everyone is supposed to fall asleep when they watch television. It gives the patient some knowledge that, in fact, what they're doing might be portable. And I think it helps everyone. I think you bring up a really good point of like, what is normal? I think patients feel very um, self-conscious about these issues. And I think if we make them feel that their problem is a norm, that it's or that other people are suffering from it too, I agree, they totally are warmed up by that. Yes. You know, the question I often get from patients, too, along this issue is, how do we know what is normal sleep? And, and really, what, how do we know enough is enough? You know, how many hours should someone, particularly a woman, be sleeping an evening? Well, interestingly, women, with all our complaints, we actually do seem to sleep longer than a man might. And all of us need at least seven to eight hours of sleep. And very few people get that on a regular basis. But the way to tell what your particular need is, is to get some time off Spend as much time as you can sleeping during the night and see how you're feeling the next day in a boring situation in the middle of the afternoon. That's your circadian rhythm downtime. If you're able to stay alert in a movie or a meeting, whatever sleep you've had the night before has been adequate. We would do that for several days of sleeping in before we would tend to burn off a sleep deprivation scene. But there are two aspects that go. It's the time that you spend asleep as well as the quality of the sleep. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, and Dr. Joyce Wesselman and I are discussing hormonally related sleep disturbance. Dr. Wesselman, let's turn our attention specifically to the patients who are postmenopausal. We've assessed that we're going to have them come in and do a thorough history, kind of assess their type of sleep. For one thing that I think commonly is a misconception, and, and correct me please if you disagree, do you think that hot flashes cause the insomnia or are just another effect? No, I think hot flashes are linked to sleep fragmentation, and that is perceived as insomnia. And some women will wake up and have the hot flash following the arousal, and others will have the hot flash and then wake up. But the aspect of a hot flash is we're all recognizing the sweat and the heat, but it's also a surge of adrenaline in the brain so that it is arousing. Despite the fact of someone saying, well, I I wasn't aware of the hot flash, they may still have these surges that do arouse them and cause difficulty returning to sleep. Do you think there's a difference in the treatment for these patients who complain, for example, the type of insomnia that's falling asleep versus the early morning awakening, which seems to be much more common in postmenopausal women? I think there is a difference. Certainly there's a difference in how you would want to treat it. But depending upon the, the symptoms, that just gives you a really good clue in terms of treatment level. 
What kind of treatments would you imagine for these patients? Well, if it was someone having difficulty falling asleep, I'd again want to find out the timing of their sleep. Perhaps they're going to bed too early to try and capture sleep, and that's a very common mistake. I'd like to know their stress level, things of that nature. But that might be a patient that you could use a short-acting sleep medication for. Someone who's waking up too early, again, may have behavioral changes going on. Maybe it's just a simple thing like putting in a dark shade and keeping the daylight out. But we tend to think of early morning awakenings in terms of depression and things of that nature. So I'd want to be investigating that on both ends. Are there other medical problems that you'd be looking into for these patients who have persistent insomnia? Absolutely. I'd be worrying about their their sugar levels, their thyroid, which is always a culprit at that age. All of the medical things that you would imagine would be very well looked into. The idea of insomnia is, in a sense, to rule out everything else before you start treating just a sleep difficulty. So a good thorough physical and history and making sure there's no other issues. Absolutely. You kind of alluded to the non-medical issues that can contribute to insomnia, such as the light in the room without the right shades and such. Are there other environmental concerns we can alert our patients to? Well, we certainly want a bedroom to be comfortable, quiet, dark, and safe. And when you think of women, particularly in my city, you think safety because any number of women are not comfortable in their own homes, either with their bed partners, perhaps, or just the security of their home. Simple things like that can make a huge difference to how someone can relax and fall asleep. It brings up an excellent point. I also think, and I find this in my own family, my my parents now sleep in different bedrooms because my father's snoring has become so untenable that my mother cannot sleep through it. And he's done many things to try to improve upon it without success. And I think that's a very common problem that people don't complain about. No, that's absolutely true. And one of the things that that happens, women during that menopausal period and and even after have more fragmented sleep. And we sleep in in a sense lighter. So we're going to pick up on a snoring issue that may have been going on all along and we never noticed. That's that's one aspect. But I'm a very big proponent of separate beds for people and separate rooms if they need to have them because I'd much rather having people waking up feeling good in the morning and then getting together rather than waking up with a you kept me up all night kind of a comment. Marital bliss has been much better for them since they've done that surprisingly. I agree. Absolutely. So in approaching these patients as a physician, how would you go about starting treating these patients? Would you jump immediately to medication? No, I I don't. Well, first of all, I'm a psychologist, so when I go to medication, it's in conjunction with behavioral therapy. There's certainly a place for medication in a short-term basis of someone having a death in the family, going through a divorce, or just huge psychological stresses that there's no way that behavioral things are going to be even done, let alone helpful. So they're the ones that you would want to consider medication for. But I frequently combine behavioral therapy and medication with the patients just so they'll have something for two or three nights out of the week. They choose the nights, and it gives them a sense of control that this thing isn't hopeless and and that I can sleep again. As far as a first-line therapy, do you have a preference for type of medications? Well, the one that I would go to certainly for a naive patient is is the new Remelteon or or Rosarum, which is the melatonin agonist. It has a wonderful side effect profile, very, very few side effects, and it is effective. Uh, Strangely enough, patients don't recognize the effectiveness of it initially, so you kind of have to talk them through for a week or so. But over time, it really seems to produce a much more normal sleep and rhythm. And for someone who's not been introduced to benzodiazepines, 
that's a much more appropriate start in my mind. Once someone has been on a benzodiazepine or receptor agonist, then they have the sense of that squishy, I'm falling asleep feeling that they won't get from the rosarum. But a short-acting medication, any of those that are, are now on the market that tend to be short-acting, is what is required for onset sleep problems. If you had somebody getting up in the middle of the night only, then I like Sonata, which is a very short-acting medication, and you can take it in three or four o'clock in the morning and wake up feeling good three or four hours later. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Joyce Wesselden, who is an associate professor of medicine at NYU and an expert in sleep disturbances, who's helped us discuss the challenges for postmenopausal women and others in their sleep patterns. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For questions or comments, a complete program information, and on-demand podcasts, please visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health.